super excited to get into a conversation today. We've we've interviewed a lot of, of pipers uh, over the course of the last, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 months, uh, but really excited to have Jerry Maxwell join us. For those of you that are unfamiliar, um, Jerry Maxwell is the lead drummer um, of one of today's, or he's one of, one of today's most decorated drummers, lead drummer of the SFU pipe band. Um, they captured the worlds in 1995 and Reed became the first person in history to lead the drum corps uh, to two or two different bands to be world pipe band champions. Um, his other victory being in 1987 with Toronto's 78th Fraser Highlanders and also the 1987 world drum corps champions. And all this was preceded by two world pipe band championships and four world drum corps championships as a member of Scotland's Dysert Dundonald Pipe Band. With the, with the band's capture of the 2008-2009 World Pipe Band Championship and the World Drum Corps Championship, Reed obtained his 18th World Championship title, an amazing feat by any standard. Uh, he produces exceptional drum corps year after year and really excited to have his insight, get to know him a little bit better, learn a little bit about his history and get his takes on everything that's going on piping and drumming right now. So Reed, thank you so much for, for being here. I'm really excited. So I wanna start very, very basic, right? How did you get started in pipe band drumming? Let's go all the way back. Well, I, I say to everyone, especially American friends, um, pipe banding in Scotland is as commonplace as a baseball diamond in the United States. There's one everywhere, okay? So I grew up uh, in a little village called Carden Den, and um, it's rather ironic that you would bring up this up today of all days. But um, uh, so I always, um, I always wanted to play drums in a pipe band because I thought it was the coolest thing that you could possibly do. I've never remotely been interested in playing bagpipes, although I love music that's played on bagpipes, but I just love it. So I got involved uh, in the village that I grew up in. There were two pipe bands and um, my cousin played pipes in the Dyson and Dundonald pipe band and my grandmother asked him if he would drop in to my mom and dad's house and take me to get lessons for the first night so he could take me up and get some lessons going. So um, I did that and you could say that the rest is history as um, I, you know, uh, I was taught at the Dyson and Dundonald organization which had a band in it called the Bolingri School High School Pipe Band at that time. Um, I was taught by a guy called Willie Bell. The whole program was overseen by a guy called Bob Shepard, Pipe Major R.T. Shepard and Sons, Highland Bagpipes and Chanters. People will might recognize that name. And um, the a couple, one, two, two kind of interesting things, I guess, um, en route to my first lesson, and continuing lessons at the local band, I traveled past the band hall of the Bohill Pipe Band, who were in the same village as well. And um, I mentioned them because they were the first band to win the official World Pipe Band Championship back in 1947. Um, and so they're from the same little village. So 30 years later, another band from the village won the World Pipe Band Championship again. And I ended up going to the Dysart Band because my cousin played pipes there. And um, on today of all days, rather ironically, he passed away this morning, my cousin, who was responsible for taking me to my very first ever Dysart Donald 
practice and I can I, I get asked about this a lot so it's, I have very vivid very good memories about that whole um, whole thing um, and so here we are I'm doing this uh, little session with you guys tonight and ironically here we are um, uh, yeah just uh, so that's how I got started and uh, I've been at it ever since. Awesome. Yeah. Sorry to hear about the, your loss. Okay. It's quite serendipitous how it just happens to be when we're having this type of conversation. Right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, kind of on that same vein, and there's a couple questions that I have coming out of, out of your response, but I'll, I'll catch up with those a little bit later. But um, biggest influence and mentor, you, you commented on Willie Bell. Um, were there any other drummers at the time that you were just like, man, like once you started really getting into the music and really hearing other bands playing and seeing other drummers, was there anybody that like you just saw and you were just like, man, this killer player, want to have hands like that? Yeah. Um, well, um, I mean, outside of my own organize, my own organization, I was very lucky to grow up. Uh, and be able to see lots of Alec Duthert week in and week out at competitions. Um, um, I, I mean, he, had, he was a fantastic player and everybody knows, I'm sure, the, the legend that is Alec and uh, his contribution to the art form, which is incredibly immense. Um, and other drummers who inspired me a lot just because I liked how they sort of did their thing was probably Alec Connell from the the old Glasgow police that then went on to be called the Strathclyde police. Um, I, I just found what they did. I just liked how they didn't dominate. Um, they didn't dominate the, the performance. They played really well with the Pipers. I always thought that was really cool. Um, so I would say that those were bands that I listened to uh, back, back then. I had several Strathclyde Police, Glasgow Police albums and Shots and Dykehead albums. And a band from that same era would have been the Muirhead and Sons pipe band um, with uh, Bob Hardy was a pipe major there and uh, Bob Turner, who I got to know a little bit in Bob's latter years when he retired. Um, but uh, they were around all the time, you know, and uh, when I was very young on the scene, um, younger guys uh, at that time, who were a little bit older than me, who were sort of bursting onto the scene were Jim Kilpatrick and John Scullion. Um, I remember fondly their performances in the World Solo Drumming Championships back in the late 70s, early 80s, when they were vying for the top spot and just kind of, you know, just listening and watching them play. They were just so good, you know. So I was lucky, very lucky to grow up at that time. A lot of good stuff going on and yeah, kind of, you always keep those things, you know, and you have things in your head from what you see, and you've always got that as a bit of a, a knowledge base to draw on when you need it sometimes, yeah. Oh, I noticed I'm muted. Um, it's, cra it's crazy sitting here listening to you talk about that because, you know, um, myself, I grew up in South Florida, and I always looked at the program up in Dunedin, like, man, I wish my family would move to Dunedin, right, because I was in Naples a couple hours south, always wanted to be a part of that program, um, but my first real taste of, of real piping and drumming was I was gifted two, two CDs, one was Master Blasters, and the other one was Down Under, and this was, like, my first ever, like, taste of real piping and drumming, and, uh, 
I remember the first set of pipes that I got, I basically learned a lot of the slow airs just by ear from that album, just listening to it over and over again. And I remember going to school and people are like, what are you listening to? And I'm like, oh, you know, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And I was listening to, to the albums over and over and over again, because I just had never heard anything like this. And then of course I got exposed to more music, but it's really cool to listen to you talk about the people that you really enjoyed listening to and, and, and playing with or learning from. Interesting that you liked, I, I guess, um, the music from like Alec Connell and Strathclyde or what they were, what they became. I'm thinking about that a little bit. Um, you seemed more focused on ensemble versus just, you know, a drum corps that's just ripping it and overpowering the piping music, right? Um, what, what was it about the overall ensemble and just hearing the piping tunes and the snares and the tenors and everything combined that made you more attracted to that versus a drum corps that was just ripping singles and, and going in, for lack of better terms? If there's, if there's a tie, if you win the ensemble, you win the contest. <laughs> no, but all, I um, I've always, I've always, I've always, uh, I grew up in a, an organization where ensemble was absolutely everything. Uh, so in Bob Shepard's band and Dyson Donald, it was all about the ensemble and uh, the the band product, and uh, that sort of never left my my train of thought. I've always thought about things quite simply when it comes to ensemble. The pipe music is a present. The drums are the wrapping paper. The bass drum is the bow and the ribbon. And the tenor drums are the name tag. And that's the order that you put together. You cannot go out of order. It doesn't work. Think about if you have a name tag and you've got nothing to put it on, it doesn't really matter. It's just a name tag. If you've got ribbon and bow and you've got nothing to wrap it up, you know what I mean? It's kind of like a simple non-musical way to look at it, but I've always, I've always thought about that. I've always been about music first and the other things fall into place. They just happen. You cannot be really locked in and having an excellent ensemble presentation without the drumming being really good. So let the drumming take care of itself and get the other things sorted out and that's it. So. I, I've, always, I've always been like that. I got more and more like that when I came over to Canada and uh, I've been even more driven by that in, in the last 25 years or so. It's just, it's really important to, and in some ways it's maybe helped mold a, a little bit of a style thing that people might say, oh, that's, that's what that old guy Maxwell does out there in Vancouver, you know, he does that thing there. And so, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of what I've always done. And, I just enjoy that. I liked it. Donald Lindsay, a very good friend of mine um, from out your way, a bit further north there. Donald once said to ask me about a score that I often play, and he's heard me play to a tune called Lock Inside, which would have to be my favorite of all tunes, would be Lock Inside. And he says, he asked me once, what, a, what was it about that? the score and why do you do it the way you do it? And I said, Donald, I'd like to think that if John McClellan afternoon could play drums, that's exactly what he would play to his turn. And so that's kind of my take on it, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, I, um, we talked about this a couple, maybe a month or two back. 
um, but nine, eight scores and, and things. And uh, I remember playing lock inside for the first time at St. Andrews with Bill Cottle and the pipe band there. And we played your score to it. And it was really cool to see less is more. And then fast forward a couple of years, I was with John Quigg and we were talking about, um, you know, other scores out there, March scores. And he's like, look, less is more like just focus on accentuating the pipe tune and really, really write a music to that versus just trying to cram notes in or play complex roles and, and watch what will happen. And uh, it's just, it's totally right. Um, and I think it is a stylistic thing that's now associated with you. So moving forward a little bit, I wanna ask kind of two, two questions. I'll ask the first one. What was the biggest challenge or learning moment that you had? Was there ever any point in time where you're like, man, I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't be playing anymore. I don't wanna play anymore. I wanna take a break or has that ever happened? Or was there ever, a, cause we talk about, you know, obviously all the winnings, right? But I think the challenges and the challenges that a lot of pipe bands or solos have, um, I think it's something to know that even some of the greatest players out there have those same challenges as well. Uh, I've never taken really any time off. I've, you know, like I've, I've never taken a season off. I've played, um, ironically, um, this August coming up will be the, I played my very first ever competition in the Novice Juvenile Grade at the Danoon Highland Games, at the Cow Highland Games in August of 1972. That was 50 years ago coming up this August and I played at my very first World Pipe Band Championships in grade one in 75 and um, I've played 42 grade one world championships in that span and uh, I love to play drums. My love of playing has, the, I said to you earlier about I always wanted to play drums in a pipe band and I still love playing drums in a pipe band. And I feel um, I feel that I've been cheated out of two world championships in the last two years, like everybody. And um, because the hourglass is running very close to its end now, you could say, at 61 years of age, um, I'm all the more uh, looking forward to August and the opportunity to still be playing at this level and uh, having as much fun. I just love, I just love to play. The music is so inspiring and not that I would consider myself as iconic in, in the music industry as Eric Clapton, who I saw when he was 62 years age, um, uh, David Gilmore, who I saw when he was 70. Um, but I find that those guys can still do it really good. So they, they kind of, they have become sort of people I look up to. If they can still do it, maybe I can still do it, you know? And, uh, uh, and uh, yeah, I would say that I, I've, I've looked a little bit outside of the pipe band world to maybe gain inspiration to keep going. But I, the, fundamentally, I love to play. I still absolutely love to play. I love to teach and I love to play with youngsters. And, um, you know, I'm lucky I get to play with um, a lot of students in the SFU Pipe Band. There's, over the years, there's been always a, a, a fairly solid number of people in the core that have come through from coming to the beginner class and worked their way all the way through. So that's kind of nice when you can stand in the drum line and you've maybe been responsible for putting 
75% of the core that's actually standing there in August playing, you've been responsible for getting there along the way. So it's kind of good. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in a few because I think that's a, a pressing topic for a lot of pipe bands, at least in our branch, which is a fairly large branch. Um, you know, how do we build up a drum core? How do we keep people hooked, right? And we'll, we'll get to that. Um, you mentioned something at the beginning of the call about how pipe bands are as common in Scotland as baseball diamonds are in America. And I'm interested in your current assessment of the piping and drumming world, both internationally and then in North America more specifically? Well, I, I think it's, in some ways, it's a little bit, it's a little bit more challenging. For example, um, I don't know quite as much about the US as I do Canada, um, but there are less people coming from Scotland and probably Ireland who are contributing to, to that part. But it's still going on at a good level across the, our country. And in your country, I, I mean, bands like the Worcester Kilties, for example, would have been a band that was primarily all immigrants, really, at, at one point in time, you know, or at least the, the largest percentage of that group. And so they don't exist anymore. Well, they, sorry, they don't exist at the level that they used to, but they still exist and they've got a bang on. But there are other areas of the US where pipe banding is strong. You mentioned, you mentioned Dunedin. I would say that that's a classic example through the, the school band and the city bands. There's a very, very good thing going on there. You could go over to Texas and you could look at the St. Thomas um, Episcopal um, pipe bands, the kids, and then this, the alumni band as being excellent examples of, you know, 50 years ago, they weren't really there, you know, but, but now they're solidly and well and truly on the, on the map. And so I think that you need to, you need to be a little bit more creative and get out there and play and, you know, like, for example, I wouldn't be keen myself on playing at, this, at any St. Patrick's Day parades because I'm too old for that. I, 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 I've, got a, I've got a get out of jail card now for playing at the mass bands and playing at parades and stuff like that. But things like that can be beneficial to bands because it gets your thing out there in front of the general public. And then all of a sudden somebody comes along that, and they, you know, they go knocking on your door. I saw you guys parade the other day and I wanted to know, do you teach anybody, you know? So there are, there are good ways to do that. And there are, I would say that the global appeal of bagpiping is, is as strong as ever. Um, and so you've just, you just, you cannot take it for granted that people are going to come knocking on your door. You've got to do things that will make them come and knock on your door. So if you, if you reach out to them, they'll come. If you don't reach out to them, they don't know that it exists. You know, like sometimes you hear about bands who, you know, like there could be a band in a small town and people, there could be a piper who moved to the small town or a drummer from another area and he didn't know there was a band until one day he saw them at the, the Memorial Day Parade on the, uh, in, in May. Or he saw them on the 4th of Oh my God, there's a pipe band in town. I didn't know. How come I never knew this? So bands have got to do a little bit more in reaching out. Um, 
and letting people know that they do stuff. And you need people within bands to teach. So I can talk about that a little bit more with other questions that might come up um, as opposed to going off in that. But I think you need to reach out. This is a perfect segue, right? So, you know, um, I think obviously exposure is huge and you're hitting on that. What other ways do you find successful bands are attracting players? I mean, there's the draw of having other successful players where other players want to learn from those successful players, but I'm interested in your perspective on some core ways to help attract more people into your organization. Well, I, I've always been a believer that you start at the bottom by, by making your own and then and then you can augment it with other people who come along as, as the, the, so if you're waiting on people coming knocking on your door, then you will eventually become extinct. I, I sort of believe that. Um, now, you might not be able to teach enough people who can play at that level, but you can certainly, over a span of, you know, like for example, we have, I think about 40 drummers in our program outside of the SFU band. I think it's something like that, let me think. Maybe it's 30, I'll say 30, maybe it's 40 and, people. Snares, tenor, space, all together? Pardon? Is that all snares, tenor, no, and bass? No, that, that's snare drummers, that's snare drummers only. So if you add in the bass and tenor, it's probably about 45, let's say, close to 50. Now, right now, I've got, plenty snare drummers, tenor drummer, and a bass drummer, okay? So I don't need a drummer this year. But what if I need one next year? I've got one for next year if I need one. What about two years from now? Oh, got one of them as well. How about three years from now? Yeah, got one of them too. What I don't want or what I don't need is I don't need four all at the same time because I don't have that many spots. So I think if you, if you can establish a core group of people and a nice size that you like, whether that be half a dozen or seven or whatever that number is, um, then what you can, all you need to do is you need to be able to add to it every year. So when we started the Robert Malcolm program in 1970, sorry, 1994, you could say that we didn't need all those young kids to be able to make the SFU band within the first, within three or four years. But by the time that they were starting to, was around about the time when we were look, maybe looking, somebody had, was stepping away because of family and other commitments. And so, oh, on you come, and, you know, that kind of stuff. So I think that that's important that you're not trying to bring in too many at the one time, but you should know, like if you were to ask me who the next player in our organization is that's likely to make the core, I would know who that is. And I have a, it's kind of like Major League Baseball. It's like, we're the, we're the top dog. We're the Blue Jays. Um, notice I didn't say the Yankees or the Red Sox here coming from Canada. It would be very bad uh, to say that. But, uh, we're, and then so you have all the, all the AAA, AA and single A teams below. And so as the person who oversees that, I know who's going to go from the five to the four. I also know who's going at the end of this summer to the threes. And I also know who might then go to the twos, but who also might then be getting ready to go to the ones. Now, I have a young chap, for example, who plays in the grade three band that 
starting in September, he will start to attend grade one practices. But he's not going to play with the grade one band for another couple of years. But you've got to start the process. And so you need to manage it like that. So I think that that's one of the most important things you can do is to manage it. And when you see people coming along, you can, you can move them off in the right direction. And, 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 and then not everybody's going to make, I mean, if not everybody makes it to the major league of anything. So if you're a hockey player, a baseball player, a football player, or a basketball player, it's a very small percent. And I would say that the percentage of people who make it to the very top in the pipe band world is no different than people trying to make it in those sporting events that we kind of watch a lot. Absolutely. When you started the RMM program in the 90s, were you thinking five years out or were you just thinking, hey, I want to, you know, start a program uh, with younger folks and, you know, kind of give back? I mean, was it was it the full intent to create a funnel? Um, the intent was that we should, it was Terry and I, uh, I think Terry might have started a junior program before I showed up here on the West Coast if he had someone who could do, the, who was able to teach the, the drumming component of it. But he didn't. And then, of course, he had him, he and Jack had young kids coming up who were going to need a place to go and play. So it, it was like the coming together of, a, of certain things, you know. But what I did say to Terry is, I said, back in the day, I said, we should have a junior program so that at least we can control a certain element of people who would be able to come into the band rather than wondering where our next player would come from. Like, I know where our next player is going to come from, but that might get augmented by someone showing up on your doorstep. Like, we have a, a, a gentleman in our core right now called Stephen Painter who is from Northern Ireland and he's immigrated and he's landed in Vancouver and he's been playing in the core for about, I don't know, three or four years now. Awesome. But that doesn't happen. That is not the norm. So if you look at the norm as bringing along prospects and work with that, then you will find that you have greater success than expecting someone. And we have had out-of-town players over the years, but I've... I've always been that I've always been of the mindset that the out-of-town player has to be an exceptionally good player that can just plug in and play. They worry about only them. They can play, do the stuff, and that's it. And there are also people who the other youngsters within the core and the organization can look up to like, oh my God, he can play. You know? So it, 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 it has that sort of component. But if you sit around and you're waiting on people coming, it's not going to happen. It, the numbers will just go all the way, slowly diminish. And so you have to be, you have to be teaching right, you know, at the grassroots level and, and get it going. So thank you for that. You know, thinking if if you were to just pick up and move to a new place, right, and you partnered with a pipe band, how would you attract those younger players? Uh, and how, I mean, maybe I think obviously if if somebody's interested and they come out and they see a grade one band play like SFU, they're going to be like, wow, this is incredible, right? But what if you're from, 
you know, like a small town in North Carolina where I live uh, and you're trying to promote piping and drumming, you're trying to get new people, like where would you go first outside of just exposure with the current band that you got? How would you attract new younger players? I would go to every Scottish, Irish and Celtic organization within an hour's drive and get them interested. Um, For example, there would probably be some Highland dancers. So every every family who has a girl who Highland dances might have a son who hates being dragged to the Highland games and has to sit around the dancing platform bored at their head. Okay, so I'm not targeting the dancer. I'm targeting the, the, the brothers or and sometimes sisters who might not want to do the Highland dancing thing. I also know that sometimes people get involved in piping and drumming because they see it as something that's maybe more fun than Highland dancing. It's maybe not as physically demanding and people don't get injured uh, uh, pipe banding as much as they do tend to through things like Highland dance. So I would go after those, those areas. So find out who the who the local Highland dancing studio people are, who are the Irish dancing people, who, who are the Celtic musician type people, would they like to come along? Bring your kids. Um, and then when it, comes to, when it comes to teaching drums to people who come in the door, I don't try to teach them drums at the beginning. What I teach them is how to be cool. And then when they realize that being cool means that you're actually, you have drumsticks in your hand and you can play drums, then you've got them. So you teach them that drumming is the absolute coolest thing on the planet. And when they buy into that, that's like a big fish taking the bait. And then you reel them in. Well, you don't, you've got them. So all you're doing is reeling them in at that point. Every youngster in North America wants to be cool. First and foremost, they want to be with a cool group. They want to do the cool things. So don't teach them drums. Don't teach them pipes. Just teach them that what they're about to get is the coolest thing they could imagine. And go about making it fun and cool. And don't get wrapped up in quarter notes and eighth notes and sixteenth notes and crap like that. Because... That sounds like math class. And you said you were going to make it cool. Can I just say, Mr. Maxwell, math class sucks. It's not cool. So where's the cool factor? And that's where you. Every kid kid in North America wants to be cool. That's one of the first things. One of the. It's one of the key things that I noticed the difference. Now, it could be different in Scotland because I haven't taught in Scotland in a long time. So I don't know what it's what goes on there, but kids, North American kids on both sides of the 49th parallel, they want to be cool. You ask them. That's what they want to be. So yeah. how do you how do you hook them, right? Like obviously, I mean, you're a cool guy, right? And all the other drummers in the SFU band and the RMM band are cool, but like, do you show them videos of other drummers? Do you give them some resources? Do you just have them come hang out? I mean, what what is it? I, I, try to, I try to teach them and lure them in a way that's fun. So when they're learning to play singles and doubles 
and triplets and paradiddles. We make it fun. And then once we get them hooked on them, then we expand it a little bit. So um, for example, I like to come up with inventive rhymes for names of movements, okay? So for example, I'll, I'll use the example of my grandson because I've been teaching him for about 15, uh, maybe about 16 months now. He's nine and he wanted to get lessons. So I've, I've been teaching him. So he can play quite a few wee things now. And he knows, for example, he knows how to play three pace rolls and nine stroke rolls and all that stuff, right? But he does, he was never shown that from the start because that's boring. I would rather, I would rather take everything off the walls in here and look at the wall than learn like that. So for example, three pace rolls, we call them elephants and kangaroos. Elephants bicycle faster than kangaroos hop. 24 strokes and a tap. 12 buzzes and a tap. Elephants bicycle faster than kangaroos hop. And I get them to say things that are, that are fun. Now, sometimes I will change that based on region and what the interest might be. So when I'm in Canada, I try and talk more hockey than baseball. When I'm in the States, more baseball than hockey. When I'm in New Zealand, you talk more rugby than anything else. And if you're in Aussie, you talk a little bit more cricket, all right? So you can do things like that and you can play on words and stuff like that. For example, hickory, dickory, dock. What seven-year-old doesn't think that's cool? They think that's really cool. So what I'm doing is I'm getting them to be cool because they're playing cool things. They're not going one triplet, two triplet, and they can't count, you know? How many, yeah. how many buzzes are in a triplet? And uh, uh, it's like math class. Math class is not cool. I want to be in the cool class. Take me to the cool class where everybody else goes. You know? So that's kind of my philosophy on that. Take them to stuff. And then one of the things I find to be quite challenging in outside of Scotland. So, for example, let's say you're a, a seven, eight, nine-year-old in Scotland and you're learning pipes and drums you would know what Scotland the Brave is, okay? But most kids outside Scotland would think that Scotland the Brave is a name of movie that Mel Gibson starred in, and he had a blue face or something like that, right? So how do we hook the kids, okay? So I have two drum scores that I use a lot, Jingle Bells and Old MacDonald Had a Farm. Do you have any idea how cool it is to be able to play jingle bells when you're seven, eight, nine, ten years old. And so when we start our fall program, it's all geared towards getting ready to play at the Santa Claus Parade on the first Sunday in December. If you can play jingle bells, you can play in the parade. The only the only request that we have is you have to go to the dollar store and buy your own Santa Claus hat. All the guys in the grade one band, we wear our Santa Claus hats. When the kids show up, they don't have drums because they're too small, but we get these little attachments rigged up. They have the, their drum pads on the attachments. And they don't, we only play, we only play about three or four Christmas carols, but the only one that they need to know to play in the parade, Jingle Bells. And that is cool. That is really cool. 
And old McDonald had a farm seems to go as a global. So once you've got past that, teach them that. Then you can start to get them introduced to the other stuff, which by then will be cool. That's awesome. Thanks for diving into that a little bit deeper. Um, have you ever had any experience with homeschoolers? Is that big up in Canada? Homeschool program? Yeah, we have. I have a couple of students currently that I teach that are homeschooled, and uh, and I would say just like I mean, I mean, the percentage of people going through public and schools versus homeschool as as more people and you know less people go. So I'd say maybe I have a, a few less of students that that are homeschooled, but um, either or it doesn't really it doesn't re really relate. I just I I try to instill in the young kids that they are doing. What they're learning to do is so cool that people at school want to know how you do that. And because you can do that and they can only ask you how you do it, that makes you cool. Hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this angle uh, with some of our students uh, in our pipe band. We'll see. We'll see how it works and I'll get back to you. Sh shifting gears a little bit, um, I want to talk about... You know, obviously we talked a little bit about building a drum corps, how to attract folks, but when you're ready to take a band, grade five, grade four, let's focus on just those lower grades right now because we have a large contingency of those in our, in our branch. Um, what do you, what are like just some like basic fundamentals that would be pillars to success for drum corps in grade five and grade four? I mean, of course, we could talk about simplicity of music execution, trying to get dynamics, focusing on that. But what are just some basic things that if the bands can go out and execute on these well, specifically the drum corps, um, that will make a bigger impact than, you know, trying to stretch it a little bit too thin, play above grade, etc. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I think fundamentally, um, okay, uh, Grade five and four bands always try to play things that are above their head. That's pretty much 99.999% of the problem. Now, several years ago, um, we're going back 20 years ago, let's say, I was really, really disappointed that the RMM grade four band that year was doing so well. And why I was disappointed is because I didn't think that they were getting challenged enough. I wanted them to be up and I wanted to get them, I wanted to see them getting their butts kicked so they would come back to band and they would be more determined to practice harder and say, come on, you guys, you can't let those old men out there beat you. Okay. And so I finally, at the pretty much the last competition of the season, I went over and I listened to the grade four competition. And I, what I found out after listening to about half the grade, the kids didn't beat them at all. The adults beat themselves. The kids just took the spoils because the adults were, they, they were just, they were, they were off. They were playing things that were way overhead, trying to play things at temples that were not realistic, tune selection, you name it. And the kids didn't do that because we didn't allow them, but there was nobody self-checking the adult bands. And I would say that, every grade five, four, and three band, if it doesn't have a former grade one, two player as the pipe major or lay drummer, they should have a piping 
and a drumming coach. Call it what you like. And you shouldn't get to play stuff. For example, the drum course were playing scores that had obviously been crafted by the members of the band. There was, there was nothing right about what they were doing, right from the get-go. Like, by the right quick march, called off too quickly, taking too big a strides when they're trying to march into the circle, uh, playing a tune that tune tune or tunes into the circle that was quite unrealistic. They would probably have struggled to play it at the halt, never mind on the march. Just a litany of things. You know, like, it's great to... As spectators, I hear it's great to get up on Saturday, the wee hours of Saturday morning and listen to the grade one final from the World Pipe Band Championships. But people need to remember that those are the best bands in the world and there's only about 20 of them and there are thousands of bands globally. So do the math. You're listening to this little bit. Major League Baseball, there's, was it 30 teams, 32 teams, something like that. Okay. But there's a lot of baseball gets played. Right. And so in major sport um, in North America, there's roughly approximately 30 teams in hockey, baseball, football and basketball is about 30 teams. So if you think about that, think about that in the pipe band thing. And also think about when you hear someone in August. It's the it's the end product. That's what you're hearing. And it's been crafted by some excellent players to get to that point. That's something that you should make a coffee in or make a cup of tea or if it's in the late afternoon, pour yourself a nice cold one and enjoy it. But don't try and take those pieces and replicate them at band when the, the, the skill set is much lower. Why don't you get tunes that are set for your skill set, play them really well, and beat everybody playing them really well. And there's lots of great tunes out there. I mean, we play some tunes and have done over the years that you could play in grade four and three, but they're just great tunes and we've played them. And, and the drumming presentation has been, you know, you can, you can take advantage of things that you can do at that level, but when you play them in, in grade four, you put the things in that, that they can play and take advantage of what they play well and craft it that way. But you don't jump in. Uh, you just, uh, uh, you know, so I, <laughs> I, I don't mean to uh, hope this won't upset anybody, um, but, and maybe, maybe because I'm focused predominantly just on pipe bands, that it could be the same in other genres of music around the globe. But I think that in pipe banding, there are more self-proclaimed experts in the pipe band world than any other form of music in the world. Let that sink in. I think, uh, you know, obviously, I mean, you're, you're an expert on the topic. So I think just, you know, hearing that, um, yeah, I would say, I think, uh, you know, let's say you come from an area, let's say, let's say New York, right? Um, I remember having some, some piping mentors in the past, you know, that came from great programs and, you know, starting a new band, I think you really have to think about who you're teaching, right? And I think that's one of the big things I've taken away from this conversation with you is meeting people where they're at, right? If they're young kids 
really trying to relate with them and, and teach them in ways that they're going to understand versus just trying to throw out a book or say, let's talk about, you know, nine pace rolls or triplets, radical cues, whatever, like that's going to go over their head. Right. So meet people where they're at. And I think it's the same thing with, with bands. Right. Um, so, you know, just kind of letting that sink in last kind of question that I have on bands and then we'll wrap, um, you know, there's, there's quite a few grade three, but there's very few grade two and very, very few grade ones, obviously in North America. Um, you can count them essentially on one hand. Uh, what do you think is the biggest, the biggest thing that grade, let's say grade three bands should focus on to go from grade three to a grade two? What do you think is the big difference? I, I think that for every band that's being very good at fundamentals, and while it's, it's good to look up to other bands, you need to be careful what you copy. So for example, if you're playing, if you're playing a big six-parted march or a big six-parted reel or something like that, is that really what you should be playing in grade three? Oh, I bet that's a great tune. I just heard, I just heard a shots play at the Worlds. Oh, it was amazing. Yes, shots played at the Worlds. Yes, it was amazing, but you're not them. And I don't want to burst your bubble, but the gap between Shots and Dykehead and the best three grade three band in the world is bigger than I can stretch my arms. That's just a fact. I didn't create that fact. I'm just saying that's the fact. That is an absolute fact. So bring it in. Play stuff that you can play that's more comfortable. And there's hundreds of tunes out there, marches for space and reels that that there's a, quite a few tunes that you hardly hear, and there's some great tunes that you, you you might go the longest time without ever hearing. And it's like, oh my God, where'd you get that tune? Oh yeah, it's been lying in the Willie Ross book for the last 80 years. No way. Oh, you know, but it's easier to go and see what somebody else is doing and try to copy that with the, maybe this knowledge base that that's maybe not the best plan for you. You know, I'm not saying that some of the tunes that bands at the very highest level play are not overly challenging technically, but they might be musically and or they just might just be beautiful pieces of music that people want to play them regardless of how difficult they are. It's just like, this is such a great term, you know? Like, I will tell you, for example, when I judge competitions, people say, do you do any pre-judging? And I say, nah, not really. I said, but what I do, what I do is I'll look at the list of tunes that the bands are playing in the MSR competition, and you can tell right away the bands that are going to be hopeless and the bands that you're going to want to listen to just by the tunes that they submit. Because in grade three, for example, it's like, no, there's no way a great three band is going to make you tap your foot really good here. Because just can't, because if they could make you tap your foot really good, they'd be playing in grade two. And that's how you know. And so it might be a very, oh my God, I can't believe Reed Maxwell saying that. But that's the truth of the matter. It's like, no, get something that's a little bit more uh, uh, in your you know, in, in, in your pocket, in your area and and bring it and present it really well. Don't, you know, there's lots of great music out there. I mean, literally, you know, hundreds and hundreds of great trends out there. Absolutely. Hey, I know we're getting close to the time. Last kind of 
Question, um, thoughts on how the new mask band scores are going to up-level and be more inclusive for players of all levels. I'm interested in your take on this. I know it's a topic that's been talked about a lot the last couple months, uh, but you know, I'd love to just kind of get your take on it right now as a final thought, because it is the, 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 <laughs> hot, the hot tea on the block right now, Reed. Right. So I was asked about this because I've been a, a huge proponent of getting rid of th those scores, the previous scores. So um, my contribution was actually the name. We don't call them scores. We call them cadences. Okay. So you, anybody can play them. You just sit in and you play them. So they are the pipe band drummer's equivalent to someone who can sit behind a drum set including yours truly, who can't play drums at, and keep a beat. That's what we've got. That's what they are. They're cadences. Now, I would say that the old mass band scores, and I use the word score loosely because it's they're not scores. A score is something that's set to a tune. That's what it is. And these are not set to any tune. For example, just on a on a personal annoys me. Do you know that almost every three four march starts on a double dotted eighth note and then goes to a thirty second note? But the mass band score is an eighth note to an eighth note one and. I have forty five great uh, uh, three four marches on file in my cupboard here and i think two of them start one and the rest of them all start one a two and so how can someone that something that's been used on mass be used for something that hardly exists now i am also asked michael a lot about so, Reed, can you tell me what makes pipe band drumming a little bit different from these other genres? I come from XYZ background and uh, we do this. And so, two things. From a technical standpoint, I don't think that any other genre requires an, a role, regardless of its duration, to be played with quite the excellence and level of proficiency as it is required in a pipe band. I could be wrong, but I, that would be a general sort of wow. Okay. Right. And then, for example, people say to me, but so what's this whole thing about the drum scores that you play? I would say that pipe band drumming is an incredibly melodic form of drumming where how the piece fits the melody, melodically fits the melody, is held to higher standards than any other genre of music. So for example, if I were playing, if I were playing in a pipe band, if I were playing, so let me just quickly grab a set of sticks here. If I were playing Scotland the Brave, at, with the RMM kids, we would play. Uh, oh, let me just put my mic at the right setting here. Sorry. We got you. It's coming through clear. It's good. Is it? Yes. Okay, no one clipping. second. So we would play. Uh, 
Now, if it was, I don't know, name any college football who has a team that has a marching band and they were playing Scotland the Brave. It would be rhythmically brilliant, but it would be not like our genre. And, and so it's what, what those guys do, I could never do, as you can clearly see. <laughs> but it's built on a rhythmic presentation, okay, where ours is built with a huge foundation in the melody. And I think that when you play a drum score, you should be able to hear the tune in the drum score. And when a piper plays a pipe tune, he should be able to understand and appreciate how it's rhythmically put together. And when all the pipers can understand how a tune goes rhythmically, and when all the, the drummers know how the tune goes melodically, then you have the foundation to start beginning to have a good ensemble. And without those components, you cannot have an ensemble. You know? Like, we have drummers, I would, I would have, I'm going to be generous and say that we have 50% of all pipe band drummers who couldn't hum the tune that they play in their MSR. Now, I don't know this, okay, but I'm pretty sure that Ringo Starr knew the words to every Beatles song. And if you, want, if you want a perfect example of the importance, I, I would go as far as saying in general music, so in, in mainstream music, the finest ensemble drummer in the history of rock and roll is Don Henley. Reed, how can you say that? That's quite a statement. Well, I don't know, but he's a hell of a singer. And he can play the drums in the egos like nobody's business. And I've never heard the drumming getting in the way of anything he sings. And I've never heard anything he sings getting in the way of how he drums. Kind of interesting. Yeah, it is. It is. And uh, I think that's something that, you know, I, I've been telling drummers that I've worked with or played with. You know, you got to know the piping tunes. You got to, because it's going to make it so much easier to memorize. If it's a good score, you're going to be able to memorize it twice as fast if you're able to actually hum the tune because should fit perfectly. Last question for you on this, and thank you for answering both of those. Um, what do you think is the, the best snare drum score, score at this time, not cadence? I've learned something from this conversation, um, many things. But what do you think is the best snare score that's ever been written that fits the tune perfectly, and it can't be something that you wrote? Oh, that's easy. Um, Back in the early 70s, the Shots and Dyke headband under Alec Duthert played um, a score to a 4-4 march called Peter McKenzie Warren. It is by far Alec's finest piece of work amongst many amazing pieces of work. Peter McKenzie Warren, 4-4 march. Now, if you don't like space, you'll not like that score. But if you don't mind a little bit of space, You'll love the score. It was the opening tune in their medley in the 70s, in the early part of the 70s when they played. Uh, Peter Mackenzie Warren, an absolutely 
unbelievable tune and an unbelievable drum score. I think it started something along the lines. There you go. Yeah. Anybody could play that, but to play it like they could and they all the way it just unfolded, it was like amazing. Yeah. Absolutely. I have to amazing. go back and listen to it. Hey, Reed, I really appreciate this conversation today. I think it's been insightful for a lot of folks. I know I had some folks texting me. Um, I lied. I have one more question. Is, is FSU, uh, SFU, excuse me, SFU and RMM attending the Worlds this year? SFU for sure. We are uh, in the midst of booking things and all that kind of stuff. The RMM program, um, we're, we're just kind of getting the kids, we've kept them going via Zoom and stuff like that. We've done a good job. We've got a We've got a pretty strong um, grade three band, a grade four band, and the grade five band's never strong. It's where, we, it's where all the wee kids get to start. It's not meant to be anything else other than fun anyway. So we'll see how that goes in the next few weeks. But we're planning to have them out and play, and the grade two band will play as well. So they're all going to play at all the local games, and SFU are absolutely 100% committed to going to the World Pipe Band Championships for another year. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Reed. Really appreciate the, the, the time today. Like I said, if we have any follow-up questions, I'll send them your way or you might see them on social, but really appreciate it. If anybody wants to reach me, they can get me on, you know, Facebook Messenger is probably the best way to get a hold of me um, or send me an email um, and I'll be happy to, you know, expand or further answer anything that needs to be. It's, it's all good. Awesome. Thank you so much, Reed. Really appreciate the time today. And uh, yeah, again, Thank you so much for taking the time to, to having the conversation with us and joining the town hall. Really appreciate it. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Till next time. Take you it easy. It. Bye.